I want to share with you a, a, a message this morning. It's, it's really how to do the impossible. Uh, the Christian life can be explained only in terms of Jesus Christ living in us and through us. Now, I've asked a couple of folks this morning when they first heard of the exchange life about Christ living in you and, and what that really means. If your life as a Christian can be explained in terms of how much you read the Bible, uh, how much uh, quiet time you have with God, or your gifts, or your talent, or your willpower, or even your dedication, if that's what the Christian life seems like to you, you are yet to live out the Christian life because that's not what it is. You see, if the way that you live your life as a Christian can be explained in terms of you and what you do, then you have nothing to share with your neighbor. Your neighbor, the way he, that he lives his life, can be explained in terms of him. He can explain why he believes like he does and why he does the things that he does. And as far as he's concerned, you happen to be religious and he is not. Christianity may be your thing, but it's not his. And there is nothing about the way that you practice it that strikes him as being remarkable. It must become convincing that the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom you speak, is essentially himself the ingredients of the life that you live. A commitment to Christ for anything less than to be cleansed of sin and be inhabited by God misses the whole point of the cross. Our commitment to Christ is measured by our belief of his commitment to us. So the bottom line is, do we really believe what he says in the word? Do we actually believe it? Can we apply it to our life? Do we really believe that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he will be with us all the way to the end? Do we really believe that? And do we really believe that we are secure, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and nothing can break that seal. You can't break it. The devil can't break it. Nobody can break it. God sealed you until the day of redemption. But do you believe it? Well, we, we say, yeah, we do, because it's in the Bible. But do we? That's the question. Jesus Christ was not committed to the political situation in Palestine or of the uh, pressing social problems of his day, not even the needs of a perishing world. You see, Christ, as a perfect man, the only perfect man, he was committed to his Father, 
and that only. And because of that, the Father was committed to him. So, in John 8, 28, the Bible says this. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. Now, are you getting the impact of this scripture? I speak, I don't do anything on my own initiative, he's saying. And his father taught him. Now, we're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about the God who called this world into existence. The one who created the heavens and the earth. Then he says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The basis of his commitment to the Father and the basis upon which the Lord Jesus Christ claims that we have, we have a commitment to him. You are not committed to a church. You are not committed to a denomination. You are not even committed to a need. You're only committed to Christ. Look at Moses. He mistook the need for a call of God. He saw one of his people being beaten, and he went out and he killed an Egyptian. He took matters into his own hands, and he spent 40 years in the wilderness. But what about Abraham? Abraham, he had a commitment to do God's will. That's all he wanted to do was do God's will. But he should have had a commitment to God. Because what happened is, in his misguided zeal, he tried to do God's work man's way. I mean, after all, If you're told that you're 100 years old and your wife is in their 90s and she's going to have a child, what would you think? You would think, there's no way. But Abraham, he believed God. But he still said, no way. How's that going to happen? And then he took matters into his own hands. He was willing to do whatever it took. He knew that God was going to give him a son. He didn't know how. He didn't know why. He didn't have any idea. But yet he knew that he would give him a son. And and Abraham was willing to have that son in any way. There is no substitute for God's work to be done by God's way. It was a heavy price that Abraham paid. As Hagar, Sarah's maid, was summoned, and the ill-begotten Ishmael was born and became the father of the Arabs. Ishmael was a byproduct of a false commitment, conceived in sincerity. Abraham was sincere. And because of the devil's alternative to faith, The Jewish people are suffering today. 
they are surrounded by Arabs. And they're still suffering today because of that. And then Abraham had to learn to trust God. I know that I, 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 I can feel that pain that Abraham had. Because after that, Abraham, he didn't know what to think. He knew that he did wrong. But God decided that he was going to trust or he was going to, to test him. And he told him to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. Now, I'm sure that Abraham thought, this can't be right. Uh, is this really what God means? Because God has promised that all the families of the earth should be blessed through Isaac. And if I take his life, then that won't happen. But notice here in Hebrews, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, Is Isaac your descendant shall be called? He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And so God is saying to Abraham, thank you, Abraham. Thank you. That's all I wanted to know, that you would trust me so you can put away your knife. It won't happen. In James, it says here, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, when I first, years ago, when I first read Reckon, I thought of, I was out west, and I thought of the cowboys out there, because that's the way they talk. I reckon so. I mean, I've heard that thing a thousand times, I think, when I was moving cattle with some cowboys. I reckon, reckon so. What do I do? Well, am I doing it right? Well, I reckon. Well, and then I find in the Bible, reckon. What does reckon mean? It means to bank on, rely on, count on, depend on, and trust in. In a nutshell... It is godliness in action. Presenting all that you are. It's not much either. All that you are. You can only be a conduit. All that you are to all that he is, and he is everything. Jesus Christ, who dwells in you, is no different than the Father who dwelt in Christ. It's the same principle as we will see this morning. Once you reckon with Christ, once you believe that he lives in you, you can bank on it, you can count on it, you can depend on it, and you can trust him with every single issue of life. You will come to believe what he says is true. You have, when you are in Christ, 
You have all that he is, and that is all that it takes to live a life of impossibilities. This is what Jesus wanted to teach his disciples, but they had a hard time believing it, and we have a hard time believing it today. So I'm going to look at the gospel here of John, and we're going to talk about God feeding over 5,000 men plus women and children. Now, it's recorded in John, in John 6, 5, Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, he turned and he said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. But Christ was not asking Philip for advice, nor was he trying to figure anything out about Philip. No, Christ replied to Philip's thoughts. Philip was thinking, how in the world could we feed this mass of people? In Hebrews, it says here, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Why did Christ ask the question then to Philip? He wanted Philip to realize the secret of living a miraculous life. How many of us have heard over the years that Jesus Christ came to give us life? He came to give us the abundant life. And how many of us had looked at our lives and said, there's nothing abundant about this life I have? What in the world does God really mean that he has come, that we might have life, and that we might have it abundantly? Why did Jesus want to teach Philip and the disciples how to live a miraculous life. For Philip had not yet learned to reckon with Christ. In John 6, 7, the Bible says, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I like the way that is put. In the... In the English version, it says it takes $200 worth of bread. And to Philip, it had to do all with financial. What was the, the financial resources that they had? In other words, there was nothing about the kind of life that Philip was living as an apostle. There was nothing about that life that he was living that couldn't be explained Easily. Two and two is four. Four and four is eight. And he could explain that very easy. But how do we calculate the difficult situations that we are facing? Have I taken the Lord Jesus Christ into account, into an account on every issue of my life? Or do I consider I was adequate enough to make some of these decisions without God? 
I can say to you that I have been guilty, guilty, guilty. There are some things that have come to my way in my, in my life that I have taken to the Lord. And I have begged God, pleaded with God, asked God to do all sorts of different things. But there's a lot of things that have come into my life that I didn't discuss with God. I thought, well, God gave me a mind and I can decide and if it is wrong, well, God will somehow make it right. Well, I'm learning. I'm learning that if I try to be the cause of my own effect, there's certainly going to be nothing miraculous about the decisions that I make. It's just not going to be miraculous. It'll be a good decision or a bad decision, but it's not going to be miraculous. In John 6, 8, he says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, verse 9, it says, there is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fishes, but how far will they go among so many? So now we have, first we had Philip, and now we have Andrew thinking, this is an impossibility, this isn't going to work. Five loaves, two fishes, there's no way that this can be done. And then you'll notice in John 6, 11, Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. Probably about 7,000 people at least. Now, there's a secret to the miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ performed. It is the very heart of the mystery of godliness. Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, who was Jesus thanking? I mean, he is the creator of the world. Well, it's obvious that he was thanking his Father God. And it's, it's obvious, too, that his Father was listening. But Christ's perfect role as perfect man, he refused to be the cause of his own effect. And there's a reason why. There is no doubt that Christ himself could have fed the 5,000 or 100,000. But if he had, if it was Christ that was doing it, if he had, he would have been, been behaving as God. And the truth is that Jesus Christ, had he both been and behaved as God, then no one would have seen him. No one has seen God at any time. The Bible says here, I do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And then it says, no one has seen God at any time. That's what the Bible says in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Well, no one has seen God. If no man has seen God, then did no one ever see Jesus Christ? I mean, remember when Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father? And Jesus replied, He that has seen me has seen the Father. John 5.30 says, it says here, I can do nothing, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Jesus Christ said, as man, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Now, in Philippians 2.7, the Bible says this, talking about Christ, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. He was, he was made in the likeness of men. And then in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What do you suppose the Bible means here? That he became obedient. Wasn't he always obedient? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, I, I guess the best way to explain it that I can think of is you take a look at electricity. No man has seen electricity at any time. Yet an electric light bulb is so designed that whenever it receives the invisible current, expression is given to the invisible item of light. The current is the cause. Light is the effect. You can enjoy the light, but you still cannot say that you've seen electricity. In all that Christ did, in all that he said, the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the work. So who fed the 5,000? God the Father, through Jesus Christ. Do you see how this works? Christ living in you. God the Father living in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ taking on humanity. And so the Father, he's the one that, that did it through Jesus Christ. And Christ exercised towards the Father as God that perfect love-faith relationship for which man, by Christ himself, has been created. What Christ did, he deliberately subjected himself to the limitations that he set when he created man. 
it's important that we realize the fact that when Jesus Christ was here on earth, he could be God and man at once, at one time. But he could not behave as God and behave as man at one and the same time. He took on the limitations of humanity. Man was created in such a way that he could bear the image of God without God himself being visible. So that not the physical form, but the capacity to behave was designed to be the means through which God intended to express himself, his nature, his character through man. It would be God himself behaving in and through you. Man's behavior as the effect was to have been the result of God's behavior as the cause. Christ living in the individual. Do you see it? Your behavior was intended by God to be a pure expression of his divine nature. And it is only the Spirit of God acting within you that can enable you to behave as God intended you to behave. It's the only way possible. In 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We have been given all that we need in life and in godliness. All of us are maturing in God. In Christ, we are maturing. We are not the same today that we were a year ago. And may we never be. We are maturing in him. His divine power is all that it takes to be godly. But it takes nothing less. In other words, the Bible says that in John 1.4, it says here, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life. Our life is in him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ living in you and through the power of the Holy Spirit by us giving God consent to live his life through us on a daily basis. Live your life in us and through us and we will experience living the impossible life. Now, To do the impossible. The Bible tells us that we are to reckon with Christ. And what we mean by reckoning with Christ is that we, we believe him. We trust him. And I know how hard it is sometimes. You know, it's easy for us to say, I trust Christ. But do we trust him with every issue of our life? Do we discuss every issue of our life? I know that when I anointed Judy, when, uh, when 
she came to the place where she said, honey, would you anoint me? And I said, of course. And um, it, I, I was agonized before we had the service, praying that God would do something. And, um, and not wanting to accept what might be God's will, I guess. Um, and, and, I, and I found myself trying to reckon with Christ, trying to believe, trying to, to know that everything is in his hands. And sometimes it's very difficult. And when she passed away, I realized how wonderful it was that night before she passed away and our discussion about God. God had prepared her. And it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. And here, I wasn't ready to settle for, I wanted, I wanted the healing. I wanted it now. And so when we take every issue of our life and we reckon it with Christ, we believe and trust him that it's all going to work out for his glory, not for ours, but for his glory, then our religious life is going to take on a different meaning. I'm going to trust God with everything? Really? Is that what God wants me to do? Yes, that's what God wants you to do. God wants you to experience living the impossible life in Christ. Reckon with Christ. And then the Bible tells us that we are created to be inhabited by God. What a wonderful concept that is. We are brought into this world. God came searching for us. We responded. And he wants us to believe with all of our heart then that he inhabits us, that he lives within us, and that his only desire is, is to live his life through us. And we can do nothing on our own. This has been a hard lesson for me. We can do nothing on our own. We don't have the power to do anything. God has all the power, and he's willing to live his life through us so that we can witness the power of God. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing. We just praise you for it. We thank you for loving us that much. And Lord, our commitment to you is that we love you. We don't always understand everything about you. We don't understand a lot. But we're willing to learn. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that you would help us to learn on a daily basis that we can trust you. We love you, Lord, but we don't always trust you. And it's our desire to trust you. It's our desire to reckon with you about everything. That we can believe that all things work together for those who love you. That we can focus on, the, on your power and not anything that we can do, say, or, or witness. We thank you for this opportunity to live out the Christian life. 
We're thankful that you have given us all that we need for godliness and for this life. And we praise you for it. It is all we can say is thank you. And, and we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.